And I'm glad to be with you to share the love and word of God with you this morning. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord for receptive hearts and minds to receive his love and word. So uh, bow with me in prayer this morning. God, we come before you as our King, our Savior, our friend, our brother, and we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that receive your love and your word this morning. I pray that everything I made up or came out of my brain won't be remembered by anyone else's, but I ask that everything that you have to say to us this morning would be received with gladness and joy and then shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We love you, we love him, and we ask for your spirit among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing in the lectionary so that we can orient our patterns in our life around the patterns in the life of Jesus uh, to give us an alternative pattern of life, uh, a tangible example of what the Christian life is outside of the walls of the church building. And with every story or teaching or miracle that we encounter, we're learning little by little how to be a disciple of Jesus and how his gospel actually works in the real world. Uh, Not as a concept, not as an atonement theory, but as real life. And so we've been doing this for about a month coming out of our two-month series on the Beatitudes of Jesus. And so far, we've seen some amazing miracles. We've seen the feeding of the 5,000. We've seen Jesus walk on water. We've heard him teach about how... We should prefer the words of God over the words of people and the traditions that we create. Uh, And last week, we saw God's prophetic picture for what his intention is for the entire world with the, the story of the transfiguration of Jesus on top of the very tall mountain in front of Peter, James, and John. Uh, The transfiguration story was actually a slight deviation from the lectionary. Uh, Just by one paragraph, and I will be honest with everyone, I wanted to deviate by one paragraph again this week. Uh, I wanted to deviate again because I just simply didn't like the text that the lectionary gave us for this week. I would have thought that it'd be more compelling and more interesting to back up one paragraph to do the parable of the 99 sheep, right? We all love, we love that story. It probably would have been a much more fun sermon to write, much more interesting one to listen to. And as I wrestled with deviating from the lectionary yet again, uh, my wonderful wife, Jessie, reminded me of the beauty of the lectionary, the, the benefit of the lectionary. And she reminded me that we don't follow the lectionary to pick and choose what we learn about Jesus. We follow the lectionary to get a well-rounded picture of Jesus. So, uh, we're not going for just highlights. Um, And so sometimes that means going through texts that are, quote, not as interesting texts, right? Or texts that really just require more work, more study, more exegesis. So our text today is not a big fun miracle, a fascinating narrative, Our text today is one that helps us 
round out the picture of Jesus that we have. It's a, te- it's a teaching text. And on the surface, it actually seems like a really harsh teaching text. And so, uh, but the more and more I, I got to study it and the more and more I became convinced that our text today is actually just as rich, just as beautiful as the flashy miracles and the fun narratives. Uh, one of these verses will be very familiar to you. If you've been around church for any extended period of time anyway, it's a passage about confronting a brother or sister who has wronged you or sinned against you. That's the language that it uses. And what it means to deal with that in a healthy way in a church community. So we will be in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. There's Bibles in front of you or under you. If you don't have a Bible, you can keep that one. If you want to study the Bible together, you can email me and we'll set up a time or bring it up in your new small group that starts this week. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. For context of today's passage, this is one of those texts that is very easy to take out of context. Uh, And for much of Tuesday, I was taking it out of context, uh, which is why I wanted to deviate away from it. I didn't look at the text in its proper context, so I wanted the easier text to teach. And so this text definitely has a proper context. Um, Jesus doesn't just start teaching about confronting offenses out of the blue. This text does not sit by itself in a vacuum. Uh, It is situated between two teachings about forgiveness. And that's the context I was originally missing. But knowing that this teaching is sandwiched between two of the most important and potent passages about forgiveness and finding one another should tell us that Matthew is not giving us a one-off teaching. Uh, This text is about forgiveness. Jesus and his disciples are likely in the city of Capernaum at this point. Uh, It's a town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem, where Jesus did most of his ministry. It's a town that's kind of like a second home to Jesus. This is where he called out Peter, and this is where he called out Um, other disciples like Andrew and Matthew to be his disciples. It's Roman occupied, of course. uh, And there's a a heavy tax collecting presence here. This is a city of commerce and fishing. uh, And so the Roman government is very keen on getting their share of the pie in this city. So uh, with that in mind, uh, let's read our text. Like I said, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version Uh, updated edition this morning. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If you are listened to, then you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If that person refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it'll be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among with them. Among them. So you can probably see how this text is a lot different from the last at least uh, five months of verses that we've, that we've come across. Uh, there, there's sort of a, an earthiness to it. There's a kind of practicality that we don't see from Jesus very often. Uh, it's a teaching about conduct and order and practicality, something we'd really expect to hear from Paul like in the New Testament or some of the other uh, New Testament letters. <clears throat> uh, but this time it's, it's Jesus getting really earthy and practical with his teachings. Uh, it's a super specific teaching and yet it's not specific at all. It's not specific at all because Jesus is bringing up a hypothetical situation. It's, this is not somebody's actual experience. This isn't a snapshot into something that someone did to Peter or Andrew or James or anything like that. It's a purely hypothetical situation. But within that hypothetical situation, Jesus is teaching his disciples about sin, confrontation, repentance, and forgiveness, all in just the first three verses of the text. And although this is a hypothetical situation, It is a realistic one. If your brother or sister sins against you. Now, if you have siblings, you know that this is more than hypothetical, right? Okay, I I have several siblings. I know that this is more than hypothetical. But Jesus is not talking about your siblings, the people that you didn't choose to be brother and sister with. He's talking about the ones you did choose, He's talking about the people in your church community, people who are in Christ, in community with you. And the reality is that if you've been around church long enough, you'll know that even though Jesus is talking about your church friends, the hypothetical situation is still just as realistic. There are times when other people who are in Christ in the same community as you, can hurt you, can sin against you. Whether they knew it, meant it, or not, the brothers and sisters you choose and love to be in community with can sometimes be a source of offense, of hurt, selfishness, pride, exclusion, anger, and malice against you and vice versa. We sometimes just hurt each other. It's our nature to do so, but it is the nature of Jesus. And the nature of Jesus is to pursue making it right with one another. And that's what this text is teaching us. Now, before I go deeper, I want to be very clear about something. There is no reason for us to think that this passage is including the sin of abuse. The context of this passage, remember it's settled between 
two different parables about forgiveness. The context seems to be more about conflict sins. You'll see in the paragraph just after, it's about, it's about commerce. It's a dispute about money. Sins that can be resolved between brothers and sisters. The sin of abuse, whether it's physical, verbal, spiritual, are things that do irreparable damage to others. Forgiveness may be possible in those situations, but just a simple read-through of this text in its context tells us we're not dealing with irreparable damage to others, things that disqualify you from calling someone a brother or a sister. We're not talking about things we call the police for. And I think it's pretty clear that we're talking about relationships between chosen brothers and sisters that may be strained, sure, but also repairable, that don't do the kind of horrific damage that abuse does to people. We're talking about civil or personal issues that can be serious, but repairable in the spirit of brotherhood and sisterhood. So with that cleared up, I want us to be able to acknowledge that the hypothetical, nameless situation that Jesus makes up is pretty realistic. We can all think of situations where someone in the church sinned against us. Or perhaps some of us can think of a time where we ourselves sinned against somebody else in the church. And I don't think it's bad to acknowledge that, especially if Jesus is going to acknowledge that. We need to be able to come to grips with the reality of our humanity. We need to acknowledge that we are not perfect people because that kind of acknowledgement is what creates healthy communities where forgiveness can flourish. All too often, people leave church because we were too proud to admit that we were wrong that we didn't treat someone like a brother or sister, maybe especially in confrontation. One of the things that plagues many Christian communities is our inability to handle confrontation, disagreement, and accountability. It's like we just don't know how to live with each other. We don't know how how to fight together and how to stay together. We don't handle being wrong very well. Oftentimes, it's not so much the offense itself that turns brothers and sisters against each other. It's our own defenses and pride to think, I could do no wrong. I I could not have done that. That is what turns brother against brother and sister against sister. And that's exactly what Jesus is addressing because immediately he goes on to say, but if you are not listened to, take one or two people with you. Part of developing a healthy culture of forgiveness is simply acknowledging that we can be and we do wrong to others, even people that we love intentionally or unintentionally. And so, I see two kinds of sin in this text. The first is not being able to admit that you can do wrong. Listen to the one who took a step to tell you that what you did was hurtful 
and just simply acknowledge your imperfection and acknowledge that everyone in here is just as imperfect and just as capable of doing something like that. Now, you might read this text and say, well, I don't think that this text is really pushing us towards forgiveness. Because you can read this text and you say, it doesn't actually say that. It says, treat that person like a tax collector if they won't listen. And yes, you're right. That's exactly what Jesus said. And this is where we find the second kind of sin. Ostracizing people who can't admit that they're wrong yet. The question we need to ask ourselves is, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Not how you and I treat them. How does Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? This is Jesus talking. This is Jesus talking. We read this text and we think we just do away with people who won't listen over and over again. We just cast them out of community. We no longer accept them as brother and sister because Jesus said, treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile. But if we read it that way, then we are reading this text out of our own imperfections. We have to remember this is Jesus talking. And let's add another layer to that. This is Matthew's gospel. Does anybody remember Matthew's story? What he did before he was a disciple of Jesus? He was a tax collector. I mean, talk about someone who couldn't admit that they were wrong. He's a Jew who worked for the occupying Romans, ostracized by his own community uh, for refusing to see the wrong that he committed against his brothers and sisters every single day by scraping a little bit off the top for himself. But how did Jesus treat the tax collector? Not by casting him aside, but by bringing him into his small community. As flawed as Matthew was, Jesus treated him like a tax collector the way Jesus treats tax collectors, with forgiveness. That's what's going on behind the practical teaching of this text. And so we get a practical teaching about confrontation of sin and forgiveness and being agreeable with one another. And then Jesus tells us at the end of the text what the whole point of all of that really was. He briefly talks about when we're agreeable with one another, then heaven itself becomes agreeable with us. And then he says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. You've heard that one before, haven't you? We've, we've heard that one before. Uh, we usually use that line when, when we experience church, like outside of the church building, right? When uh, like you're in a small group or you're in those special moments where you share with someone what God has been doing in your life or their life. We say, well, we're two or more gathered, right? That's what we say. We mean that Jesus is present with us in this moment, outside of the church building. And it's a beautiful and it's a true statement. The real presence of Jesus is with his church, even if there's just a couple of us there. And so some of the most spiritually fulfilling times, at least in my life, have not really been in large groups or in crowds, although I've had amazing experiences in those settings, 
but oftentimes I can really tell that Jesus is around when there's just a few of us meeting in his name. Maybe you have felt some of that too. It's the promise of the real, actual presence of Jesus with his people. But what's interesting is that we would expect a teaching about the real presence of Jesus to be in a text that talks about communion. That's what we believe. Somehow, in a mysterious way, Jesus is present with us when we eat the simple and blessed meal together. It might just be King's Hawaiian and Kroger brand grape juice, but in a real, real way, when we take it together, Jesus is present with us. That's the beauty of Jesus. He's with us even in the simple, ordinary things like bread and juice. And we expect the teaching of the real presence of Jesus to be in Matthew 26 or Mark 14 or Luke 22 or 1 Corinthians 11, all amazing texts about communion, the holy meal of the church family. We don't expect it to be in the middle of Matthew. And we especially don't expect it to be in a teaching about confronting or being confronted by your brothers when an offense needs to be dealt with. Because we probably associate offense, sin, and confrontation with being a time that we have to rely on Christian principles. Because Jesus himself is in the holy and worshipful parts of our lives. He's not in the, uh, the times where we, we hurt each other. That's kind of what we expect. That's, that's when we rely on what we've learned from him. We can't rely on Jesus himself when we hurt each other, right? But the amazing thing about this text is that Jesus is present, really present, where two or three are gathered in his name. Not where two or three agree in his name, where two or three are gathered in his name. This includes the two that can't listen to one another about a matter of sin and they don't know how to handle it. It includes them. Jesus is telling us that there, maybe even especially there, he is really present with his church. In both the sin and the forgiveness and the process in between, Jesus is there with us. In the earthiness of the Christian life, not just in the holy worshipful moments, but also in the normal and even offensive moments. The real presence of Jesus is a common theme in the book of Matthew. It is. Our text today is, is Matthew's way of conveying a theological move throughout his book. And uh, he, he sort of starts by telling us that God is with his people at the very beginning. Chapter one, he said that the, the angel of the Lord told Mary to name their newborn son Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Uh, what does that mean? It's Hebrew. It means God is with us. And no other gospel mentions that. Just Matthew. Matthew is in is trying to tell us that God is with us. And then we have our text today that where even just a couple people gather in his name, Jesus is present and with his people. And then we move to the very end of the book of Matthew. At the very end, 
Jesus is, he's resurrected from the dead. He's gathering his disciples. He's about to ascend into heaven to take his seat on the throne as the king of the universe. And then he looks at his disciples and he tells them to go into the whole world and make other little disciples and baptize them and teach them all the things that he taught them. And then the very last sentence of the book of Matthew is Jesus saying, and remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is present with his people. He is present with you. He is present with me. Even if we end up hurting each other and we need to deal with it, he promises that he is always going to be really present with us. So we have a lot to learn about this text and from this text. We What we learn here is the the comforting truth that practical, personal, and church matters matter to Jesus. That if we can remain humble with ourselves to know that we aren't perfect, we can listen to the people we have wronged and aim to make it right rather than double down in pride. And if someone does double down, we can also have the humility to treat them the way Jesus treated people who did wrong. And we also learn that personal and church matters matter so much to Jesus that he promises to be around. Whether we can't stand to listen to one another or if we agree in all aspects of life, Jesus is going to be around his people. He's going to be around you. Through thick and thin, Jesus is going to be around. Let's pray, and then we'll have communion together as a family. God, I thank you that you are a self-revealing God, even through texts that we initially don't like. I thank you that you show up, you show us our imperfections, Father, I ask for the humility it takes to admit that we're wrong, whether that's about a certain text or whether that's about wronging other people, wronging people that we choose to be brother and sister with. I pray that you will open our eyes and that you will give us the grace to develop a healthy culture of forgiveness, one that acknowledges imperfection and one that has the boldness to say, hey, Jesus is with us. Let's deal with it. And Lord, I thank you that in those times, you don't don't disappear. You don't leave us to our own devices. But Father, you are right there with us. And I thank you so much for that. Thank you for being a God that is with his people. We love you. We ask for the grace to love you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.